Well, good morning, Coastal Church. It is good to be with you again. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, while you find your place in your electronic devices or Bibles. I want to share a few announcements with you. I want to give you a missions update. Through your generosity, uh, Coastal raised $25,000, and um, Pastor Andrew and uh, Joey Harris, who um, is our missions coordinator that oversaw the delivery of essential supplies to Ukrainian refugees. Additionally, these funds assisted in the purchase of a van which helped transport special needs and refugees from Ukraine into their homes in Hungary. And the remainder of the money will be utilized to help build a church in Poland. Several of the refugees that uh, could not uh, remain in Ukraine to, uh, to fight and to build their churches. And so that uh, is a missions update there. Uh, a couple of other announcements. Um, I want to congratulate the graduates today. Do we have any graduates here, whether you graduated online or whether you graduated from grade school today? Is, uh, we want to recognize our graduates. No graduates in the house? Okay. Well, um, okay, well, good, good. We, would you please remain standing so we can pray for you? Let's pray for him. Father, we just thank you for our brother, Lord, as he has graduated. And uh, we pray that your hand of blessing and prosperity and peace and your presence would be upon him as he moves forward with his life. And so we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple of more things. Uh, our Gloucester land uh, has been cleared. There were some hiccups, and those have been cleared now, and now we're making progress. So continue to pray so that we can continue to make progress with that. And finally, for those of you who have children ages uh, first grade through fifth grade, that we are still registering for a wave camp. It's a great time where children come together and learn about the Bible. They do sports. They have activities. And um, you get to have your kid away for about a weekend. So, you know, that might be an extra added bonus for those of you who need a break. Anyway, we are in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And the title of today's message is Hearing and Doing the Word. Before we go any further, I'd like to have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to stand before your people. I don't take it for granted that um, I get to lead in worship by the preaching and teaching of your word. And so as I share these brief words this morning, I ask you to minister to us in a personal way that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and uh, use them for your glory. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth with power, with anointing freely and uninterrupted, Lord. Remove distractions from us so that we can receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You know, the book of James is one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible. The book of James is so rich with practical wisdom and life application that unless we pay close attention to the context of these verses we're going to be reading today and the teachings of the Bible as a whole, we can be left with the impression that James is teaching moralism or a works-based Christianity. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther felt so strongly about the book of James that he called it the straw epistle. He was of the opinion that James contradicted the teachings of Paul of salvation by faith through grace alone. But it doesn't. Paul teaches us how we are saved, while James teaches us what it looks like when we are saved. Now, before we dive into this passage, let me mention some things about the previous verses, verses 16 through 18, where we are taught that we are saved and that God chose us. In fact, it says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He saved us. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. God is the one who initiates and finalizes our salvation. He is Lord and sovereign over salvation. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says it this way. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we were born with a sin nature. The epistles tell us that we were by nature children of wrath. And because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, God sent his son who lived a perfect life, who was God in the flesh, because God's standard for us is not that we are good to get into heaven. God's standard for us is that we are perfect. And so he lived a perfect life, was crucified, died on the cross, was buried and placed in the tomb, and rose again from the dead on the third day to prove that he was God and to give us the hope of eternal life. And now, when we repent of our sins, when we believe the gospel, the substitutionary death, and we receive Christ, the Bible says that we are saved. And all of this because we have this thing called a sin nature. It reminds me of the story of a frog and the scorpion. A scorpion uh, wants to cross a river but cannot swim, so he asked the frog to carry him across. Uh, the frog hesitates, afraid that the scorpion might sting it. But the scorpion promises not to, pointing out that it would drown if he killed the frog in the middle of the river. The frog considers the argument sensible and agrees to transport the scorpion. Midway across the river... The scorpion stings the frog anyway, dooming them both. The dying frog asked the scorpion why it stung the frog, despite knowing the consequences to which the scorpion replies. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. It's in my nature. 
And in the same way, we all have a sin nature, and that's why we are, when we are saved, God gives us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us to live a life for Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Therefore, as we approach verse 19 today, we do so with the understanding that these eight verses are describing our response as believers to the reality of our salvation. And this is really the big idea of this text, which brings us to point number one, which is really a good theological statement. True justification produces sanctification. To be justified means that God has made you just. You are no longer guilty of your sin because Christ's sacrifice has removed that guilt and its punishment away from you when you were born again. Now, because you are justified, the evidence of that is that you are sanctified, or better stated, when we have been made right with God, the fruit of that is that we begin to grow in holiness. The main idea of sanctification is to be set apart from sin to live a life of service to God. It is to be set apart from God for the glory of God. And it is to this individual who has been saved by grace through faith alone, that James addresses these verses to. Now that we understand it, let's begin our reading there in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And these verses, excuse me. In these verses, we are instructed to be good listeners. We are to be people who listen well, people who know how to control our speech. It is always a good policy to listen well before we respond. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 says, If anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you might know how to respond to every man. And in order for us to respond gracefully, we must be people who listen well first and be people who exhibit the fruit of self-restraint and self-control. Then it says that we are to be slow to wrath. In other words, we are to be people who are not controlled by anger. We must not be controlled by anger, but anger has to be controlled by us. This is why Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and sin not. We can experience anger, we can feel anger, But we need to learn to express it and process it in a relationally healthy and godly way. 
By the way, the Bible teaches that a person that is given to anger is a fool. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 9 says, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. We cannot grow in righteousness when we are controlled by anger. This is the reason that it says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are called to be people who grow in righteousness. We are called to be fruitful. Therefore, James is admonishing us to be people who are good listeners, cautious speakers, and people who are not quick-tempered or impetuous. Instead, we are called to be deliberate and self-controlled. In other words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our speech should reflect our beliefs. For example, when a Christian feels angry about something and he chooses to listen objectively and speak in a calm, humble, non-defensive way, that person demonstrates that he or she is a person who is spiritually mature and has self-control. Now, I'd like to make a distinction here because there are those of us like myself, I'm just loud. And if you catch me on a normal day, you would say, what's wrong with Pastor Tito? In fact, there are times when I am sitting next to my wife in bed and she says to me, why are you yelling? To which I retort, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just loud. If you come to a family reunion, you would think that we are all fighting and we're actually having a good time. So I want to make a distinction between the person that goes from zero to 100 and is angry and the person like me that's just a loud Puerto Rican. Thought you guys would get a kick out of that. So this person is exercising temperance. In order to do this, one must have a commitment to grow. One must have a commitment to see the fruit of the Spirit developed, displayed, and exhibited in one's life. Which brings us to point number two. The genuineness of our faith is evidenced by a commitment to grow. When the verse says that the anger does not produce the righteousness of God, we can infer that James wants us to be intentional about producing the fruits of righteousness. In fact, Peter addresses this more directly in 2 Peter 3.18 when he says, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, in order to do this, we must have a determination to grow. We must have a desire to grow. We must have a focus to grow. We must have a passion to grow. It doesn't happen by osmosis. In the same way that developing muscles doesn't happen by sitting at home in the couch. 
Growing spiritually doesn't happen by osmosis. In fact, Romans chapter 12 verse 11 deals with this a little bit more uh, emphatically. Paul says, do not be slowful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Let me ask you a question today. Do you have a zeal for the Lord? Are you fervent in spirit serving the Lord? Do you have a passion for the things of the Lord? How's the temperature of your relationship with God? If our hearts are cold, we need to pray. If we are complacent, we need to pray. If we are lazy, we need to pray. If we are disinterested, we need to pray. We must ask God to change our hearts. We must ask God to light the fire in our hearts. And we must examine to see what are the things that are keeping us from having a zeal and a passion for the things of the Lord. Uh, my son Christian, I like to tell Christian stories because Christian does a lot of shenanigans and he pro just provides a lot of good material for preaching. <laughs> so uh, Christian gets uh, uh, transported to school from uh, Yorktown to Chesapeake every morning and um, because uh, he is adventurous and he doesn't like to stay in the same place, at the one place at the same time, he has to be transported in a harness in addition to a seatbelt. And so there are many times that Christian wiggles out of his harness and the seatbelt and he decides to go and socialize on the bus while the bus is rolling down 64. How many of you know that this is dangerous and this outside of the policy of your county school district? And so they try the best that they can with incentives and they threaten him and they do all these things and usually when they can't do anything else they wind up calling Jiba or myself and we wind up having to go and pick him up at some remote location or at the school because he will not stay in his harness. And what he demonstrates is that his desire to be out of the harness far outweighs any threats we might give him. His desire to be outside of that harness far outweighs any dangers he might put himself through. His desire to be outside of that harness far outweighs any incentives we might give him. His desire to be outside of that harness far outweighs any consequences. He just wants to be free. He wants to be loose of those restraints. His passion and his determination should serve as an example to us to be just as passionate and just as determined to want to grow spiritually. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. These are five verses, but I want us to read these verses because uh, Peter really deals with this issue directly. He says in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, 
For this very reason, make every effort. I'm going to read those three words again because I don't want us to miss them. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, your godliness with brotherly affection, your brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When our faith is genuine, it will cause us to want to grow. It will cause us to want to hate our own sinfulness. It will cause us to want to hate our apathy. It will cause us to want to hate compromise. And this is why James says that faith without works is dead being alone. Now, this helps us understand what James says in verse 21 when he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, these verses are teaching us that we are to put away filthiness and wickedness. And the idea here is that we are to purify our hearts, that we are to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Uh, there's a wonderful verse in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statues and ordinances in Israel. This is one of the reasons we often say in our services, let's take these last two songs to prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. We want to make sure that we have the right heart posture. Letting go of the sinfulness in our hearts and confessing it and forsaking it should bring us to a place of meekness. Meekness is the right posture of heart. This is why the latter part of verse 21 says that we should receive the word with meekness, the implanted word. The word preached to us is like a seed. Therefore, whether we are reading the word, whether we are studying the word, whether we are meditating on the word or hearing the word, we must do it with a meek heart. The word meekness is the Greek word prautes. The word is used to describe an inner quality. It is the temper of a spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. In other words, uh, the word meekness or prautes in the Greek is a humble willingness to accept from God without any resistance. 
I don't know about you. There have been times when I've been sitting in a service and something is said and, and uh, my heart becomes a little resistant to what is being said. Has that ever happened to you? Not me, not Tito, my heart. We can become resistant to what the word of God says. The word is presented as a seed and we have to receive it with the right heart posture. When the pure sound word of God comes to us, we must willingly receive it in our hearts without any question or resistance. This is why Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you would hear his voice, harden not your heart. Which brings us to point number three. We are to receive the word. It's interesting that the Bible presents Christ as the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Verse 12, the word was made flesh. When Christ, the living word, is presented to us, we must willingly and humbly receive him without resistance. When we are receiving the word, we are receiving from Christ. And the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. And as we are praying and the Holy Spirit brings the word to our memory, we must receive it. When we are hearing the message preached, we must receive it. When others are sharing the word with us, we must receive it. Receiving the word is almost like signing for a package. Have you ever received a FedEx package? Uh, sometimes people bring a FedEx package to my house and it doesn't have my name on it. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not signing. And I close the door and I reject the package. And it is the same thing with the word of God. Sometimes the word of God can be preached from the pulpit and we don't sign for the package. We must receive the word with meekness. Too many times we're hearing the word and we say to ourselves, oh, that word is from him. Oh, that word is for her. I wish they hadn't missed church today. I'm going to send them a copy of the message. Or if you're in here and you're single and you hear us preaching about marriage, you tune out because the word is not for you. Or if you're married and we start addressing singles, you tune out because the word is not for you. Or you hear a topic that doesn't interest you, you don't want to hear about a topic, like, for example, money or prayer. And we think to ourselves, oh, the word is not for me today. No, the word is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And any time the word of God is being preached at all times, the word is always for you. It has the ability to change our hearts. Not only is the word alive and powerful, the word of God has a cleansing effect in our lives. John chapter 15 verse 3, Jesus said this, You are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. At times, our attitudes are not right. Might I suggest? you need a sponge bath with the word of God. At times, our thinking is not right. 
might I suggest you need a sponge bath with the word of God. At times, our behavior is not right. We need to be washed with the water of the word. But James doesn't stop there. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Our receiving of the word is evidenced by doing the word, which brings us to verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself for anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and he at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Listen to this. He will be blessed in his doing. Verse 22 says that we ought to be doers of the word and not hearers only, which brings us to point number four. We ought to be doers of the word. When we receive God's word, when we receive the word of Christ, it is evidenced by our obedience. There's an interesting story in the book of Acts where Barnabas went down to Antioch, and the Bible says in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, that when he went there, he saw the grace of God and exhorted them that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord. These people and Antioch, they had received the word of God into their lives. Their lives were changed, and it was evident that the grace of God was in them because their actions and their lifestyle gave testimony to the grace of God. Oh, I have to ask you at this point. You guys know I like rhetorical questions. How is your life giving testimony to the grace of God? How is your life giving testimony to God's grace? They had changed. Not only had they heard the word, but they received it and applied it to their life. And the verse says that they saw the grace of God. It can be compared to most sports. I like watching boxing, and sometimes I stay up much later than I should, and I come underslept to church, but I come anyway. But uh, So it, in most sports, uh, people who, most sports skills can be learned and developed, and you can become good. However, there are people who are gifted at sports, they have athleticism and ability and certain qualities at birth. And when they work hard and develop their skills, they are great at sports. There is a difference between a person who is good and a person who is great. And you can see this with the naked eye. In the sports world, we call this the eye test. In the same way, when we have prepared our heart and received the word of God with the right heart posture, we will pass the fruit test. We will pass the eye test. A.W. Tozer once says, and I quote, The Bible recognizes no faith 
that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith, end quote. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. Let me highlight one more thing from these verses. It says that we are not, if we are not doers of the word, we are deceiving ourselves. And I want to come back to self-deception later. In other words, when we are walking in habitual disobedience to God's word, we are deceiving ourselves. The text goes on to say that we are like a man who looked at himself in the mirror and forget what he looks like. Could you imagine running into a clone of yourself and not recognizing yourself? This is exactly what James is alluding to here. If we are living our lives like this, it should make us want to examine ourselves. We should ask ourselves, what is going on in my soul? I can't recognize who I am in the mirror. Which brings us to point number five. Habitual disobedience should lead us to self-examination. James says, if you're not doing the word, you are self-deceived. The spiritual state should make us examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves regularly is, am I holding a grudge? Do I have unforgiveness? Am I bitter? Am I believing lies? Am I believing the lies that my own heart tells me about me? Am I believing the lies that my own heart tells me about others? Am I believing the lies that my own heart tells me about what others think about me? Am I being swept away by every wind and every talk, doctrine? Am I listening to false teachers? And as a result, I have started to believe bad doctrine and now it is affecting my lifestyle. One of the things that happens to us as we grow in the Lord is that we become good at assessing what's going on in our own heart. David did, did this in Psalm 42 where he said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you discouraged? Why are you depressed? Why are you tripping? Why are you jealous? Why don't you like that girl? What about her? What about him makes you not like them? And we have to ask ourselves these questions. If we hear the word and we don't apply, we must examine ourselves. But we must know that our self-examination can be biased and short-sighted. And this is why we have to ask God to examine ourselves. In Psalm 139, uh, verse 23, David said, Search me, know me, try my heart, see whether there be in me any wicked way. And at times... We need others who are spiritually mature to help us examine ourselves. We need to have the kind of relationships that we can be transparent and vulnerable with. Those are the kinds of relationships that can foster growth. Vodi Bakum once said, and I quote, You and I are sinners. Moreover, we are self-deceived. We do not see ourselves accurately. 
Every one of us thinks of himself more than he ought. We are in desperate need of brothers and sisters who can tell us the truth. More importantly, we need to be the kind of people who acknowledge the truth, end quote. Now, James warns us about the dangers of disobeying the word we hear, which brings us to point number six. When we don't obey God's word, we demonstrate that A, we are self-deceived. The text actually teaches us that we, when we hear the word and we don't believe it, we are self-deceived. Galatians says, 6, three says, whoever thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In 2 Timothy 3.13, it says that evil men and imposters will grow worse deceiving and being deceived. Hebrews 13.3 teaches us about the deceitfulness of sin. Another thing that this passage teaches us is B, that we have forgotten who we are. Looking in the mirror and forgetting who we are. We have forgotten our identity in Christ. We live out of our identity. I remember the first time that I went to a, a Menocostal meeting. And the question that was asked was this. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And we went around. There were probably about 20 men in the room. And they all said, well, I'm, a reti I'm retired military. I'm, I'm the, I work in architecture, and I'm this. And every man in the room described what they did. <clears throat> Me, because I'm extra, and those of you who know me know this. I said, I'm a child of God. I'm a father, a husband, and a brother. My identity... And I said that because I was taken back that the question was, tell me about you. And without fail, every person in the room went to identify with what they do as opposed to who they are. Who are you? Who defines your identity? It is in him that we live and move and have our being. And I hope today that your identity is rooted in Christ. If everything around you or everything that you own or every, everyone that you hold dear what would be removed from you, who would you be? Would you say that God's still on the throne? Would you be okay with just you and God? It doesn't mean that it wouldn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it won't be inconvenient. It doesn't mean that it would not would it be a least likely outcome because we all have things that we wish wouldn't happen in our lives. But at the end of the day, could you, like the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is a gain. If I lose my money, if I lose my house, if my family is gone away from me, God is still on the throne. And I am still going to heaven. In the Western world, our Western Christianity, I am constantly amazed of how bound we are to the stuff that's down here on earth. Let me give you one more observation. Verse 25 says that the person who hears the word 
and does it is blessed in his deed. This brings us to our final point number. This is not our final point. We have more. Uh, one more point after this. Um, I almost said final. Uh, there is a blessing attached to obeying God's word. Andrew Murray once said, beware of praying only for a blessing. Let us seek first obedience and God will supply the blessing. Our constant question as a Christian should be, how can I obey and please God perfectly? The Bible is full of powerful statements that should inspire us. The Bible says that he gives the Holy Spirit to them who obey. The Bible talks about these verses where he surrounds the righteous with favor as a shield. There is a blessing to being a attached to the word of God. When we purpose in our hearts that we are going to walk in obedience, when we receive it with meekness, there is a grace, there is an enablement, there is an empowerment that comes along with the word. The Bible talks about 10 lepers who came to Jesus to be healed. And when those 10 lepers, when Jesus saw the 10 lepers, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And in, the reason he told them to show themselves to the priests is because the priests were the one that would allow them back into society. He told them to do that while they were still lepers. And the scripture says this, they were cleansed as they went. They were cleansed as they went. There is this inherent power when we choose to obey the word of God. And so let's read the last two verses and then we'll close. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. James further challenges us, he challenges his audience by saying that if our, out, that if our outward show of devotion to, devotion to God must be more than devotion. Our fear of God and worshiping of God should be evidenced by how it affects others. And this is really our last point. Authentic faith will always bear fruit to the benefit of others. I'm going to call the worship team to come up. Um, the, there is an organization called the, um, the Red Cross Society, and it was founded by a gentleman named uh, General Booth. And as he was older, they, would, they had this gathering of all the people from the uh, Red Cross, from all the people from all of the different areas, and he was scheduled to give a speech, and he was ill. And so he couldn't go, so from his bed, he wrote a note, and he sent the note. And the person got up front in front of all the people who were there, part of the organization, all the workers and all the employees, and the note simply read others. He lived his life for the benefit of others. And one of the things that helps us stay focused on Christ is staying focused on his mission, which is to save people. It is good to remind ourselves that people are created in the image of God. That person who offended you is created in the image of God.
that person who hurt you is created in the image of God. <laughs> that person who annoys you <laughs> is created in the image of God. Oh, the person who irritates you, they're created in the image of God. He or she was created by God. And the scriptures teach us to do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain glory, but in lowliness of mind to esteem others better than ourselves. And so I want to ask you to stand to your feet. The worship team is going to lead us, and I'm going to lead us in prayer first. But I want to, I want to challenge you this morning. I know, this, these, I know these are some tough verses because I was sweating even as I was teaching them. And James really challenges right where we live. He, he really challenges our Christianity. One, if you're not a Christian today and you need to receive Christ, there'll be some people here up front to pray with you about these things. And maybe you're struggling with an area of obedience in your heart. Maybe you're struggling to be a doer of the word or you have these mental battles or you have any, some, some struggle in your life that you need God's grace. The Bible says that the doer of the work is blessed in his deed. So as we enter into a time of prayer and worship today, I want to encourage you not to leave this place without receiving ministry. God loves you. He wants you to have a fruitful life. He wants you to have a victorious life. He wants your work of faith to be blessed by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word this morning. I thank you because your word never returns void. I just pray, Lord, that this morning as we have uh, navigated through these tough verses, Lord, that we would be authentic and truthful in us to examine ourselves in those areas where we need growth and that we would be humble enough to ask you or perhaps others for help with them. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name.